It is Psalm 91, the 91st Psalm. The 91st Psalm. The whole psalm is really to do with this matter, basically. He that dwelleth in the secret place of the Most High shall abide under the shadow of the Almighty. I will say of the Lord, my refuge and my fortress, my God in whom I trust. For he will deliver thee from the snare of the fowler and from the deadly pestilence. He will cover thee with his pinions, and under his wings shalt thou take refuge. His truth is a shield and a buckler. Thou shalt not be afraid for the terror by night, nor for the arrow that flieth by day, for the pestilence that walketh in darkness, nor for the destruction that wasteth at noonday. A thousand shall fall at thy side, and ten thousand at thy right hand, but it shall not come nigh thee. Only with thine eyes shalt thou behold and see the reward of the wicked. For thou, O Lord, art my refuge. Thou hast made the Most High thy habitation, there shall no evil befall thee, neither shall any plague come nigh thy tent, for he will give his angels charge over thee to keep thee in all thy ways. They shall bear thee up in their hands, lest thou dash thy foot against a stone. Thou shalt tread upon the lion and adder, the young lion and the serpent shalt thou trample underfoot, because he hath set his love upon me. Therefore will I deliver him. I will set him on high, because he hath known my name. He shall call upon me, and I will answer him. I will be with him in trouble. I will deliver him and honor him. With long life will I satisfy him and show him my salvation. And then, in the New Testament, what do you think would be the passage in the New Testament that we would take? I expect some would think of a passage in the first letter of Corinthians, but the passage that I think is the most important <coughs> passage in the New Testament on this matter of covering is Ephesians 6. Ephesians 6 from verse 10. The sixth chapter of Ephesians. <clears throat> Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the whole armor of God, that ye may be able to stand against the wiles of the devil. For our wrestling is not against flesh and blood, but against the principalities, against the powers, against the world rulers of this darkness, against the hosts of wicked spirits in the heavenly places. 
Wherefore take up the whole armor of God, that ye may be able to withstand in the evil day, and having done all, to stand. Stand therefore, having girded your loins with truth, and having put on the breastplate of righteousness, and having shod your feet with the preparation of the gospel of peace, with all taking up the shield of faith, wherewith ye shall be able to quench all the fiery darts of the evil one, and take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God, with all prayer and supplication, praying at all seasons in the Spirit, and watching thereunto in all perseverance and supplication for all the saints. And on my behalf, that utterance may be given unto me in opening my mouth, to make known with boldness the mystery of the gospel, for which I am an ambassador in chains, that in it I may speak boldly as I ought to speak. Let's just once more ask the Lord to be with us. Dear Lord, we thank thee thou art with us, but now, Lord, thou knowest we're all different ages spiritually, different conditions, different backgrounds. Oh, Father, we pray by thy Spirit, take this subject and bring it in life to every one of us. And may something of its importance dawn upon us this night. We ask it in his name. Amen. Well, now the subject we are talking about this evening is covering. Covering. It is perhaps one of the most vitally important subjects that we could study together. I have no doubt that there are some here who might straight away wonder, I've never heard of covering. Where does it speak of covering in the Bible? The fact of the matter is that this matter of covering, being hid, is one of the strong emphases of the Bible from its beginning to its end. It's summed up in that wonderful psalm we read together, which many of you know, is really a continuation of Psalm 90. It is the same psalm that was divided into two. And you will notice that in Psalm 90, verse 1, it begins, Lord, thou hast been our dwelling place in all generations. And then in Psalm 92, it, in verse 1, it says, He that dwelleth in the secret place of the Most High shall abide under the shadow of the Almighty. Perhaps you've never thought of that as covering, but that's exactly what it is. He that dwelleth in the secret place, the covert, the covert, 
the secret place, the covered place of the Most High shall abide, shall remain under the shadow of the Almighty. The Almighty will be his protection. The Almighty will be his security. The Almighty will be his safety. The Almighty will come between him and anything hostile. He that hath made the Lord his habitation, he that dwells in the secret place of the Most High. Now you will see in this psalm that it speaks about all kinds of terrors. It speaks of the terrors of the night, horrors of the night. It speaks of pestilence, which is not only physical pestilence, but spiritual pestilence too. Many, many Christians suffer from spiritual pestilences. That is disease, some infection that won't clear up, that is somehow or other just getting them down all the time. Sometimes they think it's just something to do with the way that they're meant to walk, but it's not. It's because they've got uncovered. The Word of God says here quite clearly, that the pestilence, the plague, the pestilence shall not come. He shall not be afraid of the pestilence that walketh in, dark, uh, in darkness, nor for the destruction that wasteth at noonday. So there are, there's a kind of plague, there's a kind of, of disease, there's a kind of infection which, of course, any of you who know anything about the East will know quite well, that can sweep through a community within hours and decimate it. And that's really what the psalmist is speaking of here. Something, a pestilence, a destruction that wastes at noonday, that lays everything low suddenly, almost without explanation. He speaks of a plague coming nigh your tent. It shall not come nigh your tent. He speaks of war. Thousand falling at your side, ten thousand at your right hand, but shall not come nigh thee. The whole psalm speaks of all kinds of hostile things. Things that would come out against the child of God. Things that would come out against the church of God. That would destroy it. But that's not the emphasis of this psalm. It isn't that the Christian is surrounded by hostility, that the Christian ought to be frightened to death by all the things that are around him. The whole emphasis of this psalm is covering that the child of God can walk with his head high in the air, that the child of God can have boldness to come into the most holy place of all, by the blood of Jesus, by that new and living way, which is Christ himself. That's the emphasis of this psalm. Covering. Get out from under covering, and immediately hostile forces can get their grip on you. Keep under covering, and you are safe. There is no matter more important to both young and old believers than this matter. If I were asked, and I have been a number of times, 
What do I think is the mo one of the most essential things for a young believer to know? I would say straight away how to be covered, how to remain covered as a child of God. And if an older believer said to me, what do you think is the most important thing I as an older believer should know? I would say straight away how to be covered. I have seen quite a number of people go off the rails. It all begins with uncovering. Only, of course, there is a stupidity about many of us, an arrogance, a presumption, an insensitiveness to the things of God and to the ways of God. Sometimes we see his acts and we don't understand his ways. And because of that, we are undone in the end. Pride always goes before a fall. But to be proud, you don't just have to be kind of haughty in your dealings with other people. You can be haughty in your dealings with God. As if you've got a right somehow or other that God should open everything up to you and to me. That somehow you've got a right to tell God what to do in a kind of arrogant and presumptuous way. That's the pride that goes before a fall. And that's the kind of thing we're talking about. I know some great servants of the Lord who in their last days got uncovered. So this just simply means that if we were to take note of this matter, it would be well worthwhile. I wish I could speak much more freely about some of these things, give you much more evidence, but I don't think it would be so very um, helpful. The thing is, the enemy has a great objective with every single child of God and with the church of God. And it is to get us uncovered. He cannot do anything when the church of God is covered. He cannot do a single thing. I mean it. There's not a single thing Satan can do with the church unless it's per permitted and allowed by God. Therefore, the enemy's whole plan, his design, his objective, his strategy in this war is to push the church or a church out from covering, to get it exposed, to get it out into the open, as it were, away from its safety, when then the enemy can come and demolish it, just like that. His strategy is exactly the same with the child of God. His whole strategy is to push the child of God, unknown to the child of God, into a position where that one comes out from under covering. Tries to meet the enemy, himself or herself. And the enemy knows exactly what to do with the very best of us. You remember, of course, and we shall be dealing with this later, uh, not today, with some of those great examples in the Old Testament and the New, but I think immediately of David. He got uncovered when he didn't go out to war with his men. He was not at the head where he should have been but stayed back, he was uncovered. 
And whilst he was in that position, perhaps he thought to himself, I'll read the scriptures. I'll have a wonderful time. I'll have a time of meditation and reflection. And he went up on his rooftop to have this meditation and reflection. But he was uncovered. If we can even talk about spiritual things and yet be uncovered, we're out of the will of God. There he saw Bathsheba. And there the whole foul idea of murdering her husband and taking her took root in his heart. Where did such a foul and vile idea originate if it didn't originate in Satan? Out to destroy David and out to destroy the whole work of God and the people of God. Just out to destroy the whole thing. It is a wonderful thing that God understood who was behind it all. And it is a wonderful thing that David finally got back under covering and said, blessed is the man whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Covering is vital. That's why, of course, the Apostle Paul, in his great letter to the church at Ephesus, which I think all of us agree is the high watermark of Revelation in the New Testament, why, after this tremendous revelation, he then, in his final words, comes right back to this whole matter of covering. Now, you may not think of it as covering, but that's exactly what it is. Wherefore, put on the whole armor of God. Don't leave a single chink. From head to foot, be covered. There is something of Christ for every part of your being. And it is very interesting that he's not just really even speaking of individuals there. He's speaking to the whole church. He's saying to you all, now all of you together, put on the armor of God together. See that Christ is the helmet, that he is the breastplate, that he is um, the girdle, the belt, that he, that he is the shoes on your feet, that he is the shield of faith, that he is the sword in your hand. Covering. The apostle knew very well that no company of believers who began to see something of the eternal purpose of God, any child of God, who begins to see something more than forgiveness of sins, who begins to see that behind it all lies a tremendous purpose from eternity to eternity, no child of God who begins to see that is safe. Unless he knows how to put on the whole armor of God. Can I illustrate? You know, our trouble on this matter of covering is that we all go by these eyes and by our physical senses. You know, it is just like being exposed to invisible rays. If there was something radioactive in this room, none of us could see the rays. None of us could see the danger, but every single one of us would be exposed to death-giving rays. 
We are exposed to something. Now this is what this whole matter of covering is about. That spiritually we can be exposed to rays, to things that we can't see or sense with our physical senses, but which we can know if we have our spiritual senses exercised, we can know spiritually. Things that are coming at us. Now the whole problem is covering. If you're covered, none of those dangerous or injurious things can harm you. I remember as a boy, I was a little boy, but I remember I was always mystified by all those old gentlemen going to work with umbrellas and helmets. Of course, it was in the war. I couldn't understand what those helmets were when I was a little boy. But I was told that it was something to do with shrapnel. You know as well as I do that just recently a young lad lost his life in Belfast as he leaned out of a sentry tower to speak with his relief. He hadn't put on that uh, vest, that protective vest. A bullet got him. That's what covering is. Never to be without your protective vest spiritually. Never to be without the helmet of salvation spiritually. Always to have on the armor of God. Again, may I say, in introducing this whole subject, which is all we're doing really this evening, um, that uh, the temptation of Christ was just along this line. If you look in Matthew chapter 4, you find that the Lord Jesus Christ was tempted in three main ways, or tried in three main ways by Satan. Each time Satan used scripture. Now, what, may I ask, was Satan trying to do? You know as well as I do that the Lord Jesus could easily have turned stones into bread. After all, a little later on in his life, he did feed over 5,000 people with five loaves and two fishes. And on another occasion, he fed 4,000 people with seven loaves and a few fishes. He could easily have done this. Why did he not do it? Wouldn't it have silenced the devil if the Lord Jesus had just commanded that these stones be made bread? But the whole point was this. The Lord Jesus was being tried not as God, but be, he was being tried as man. And he knew in his heart that he had no direction from God to turn those stones into bread. And the devil's whole objective was to get him to act independently of God. To get him to do something which seemed to be right and legitimate and expressed faith and was a miracle of the first order. But it was done apart from God. If the Lord Jesus had done that, he would have been immediately exposed to enemy interference. Then again, the devil took him up on a high pinnacle of the temple and said, cast yourself down. Why? He quoted the very scripture from Psalm 91. 
He shall give his angels charge concerning thee. On their hands they shall bear thee up, lest haply thou dash thy, thy foot against a stone. This very psalm about covering. Wouldn't it have been an easy thing for the Lord Jesus just to have done it? Many times when they were going to um, lynch him, he walked straight through them. Not a man could touch him. It would have been an easy thing and a rather wonderful thing. But the devil knew very well that Christ could turn stones into bread and he knew very well that the Lord Jesus could come down from the highest pinnacle of the temple and, be, and come down safely. He knew it. What he wanted to do was to force him or tempt him to act apart from his father. And if he could only do that, he'd exposed him to these deadly rays. From another world. So you can go through these temptations and you see it's all to do with this matter. Now, I cannot uh, profess to understand fully this subject. And therefore, straight away, um, I want to say to you this evening that I am as much a student in this as anyone else. And if anyone has light on this matter, I would be only too glad to hear uh, uh, from you if you would share it with us. What I know is that we're touching something like an iceberg. Very little is above the surface. The, the vast amount of this whole matter lies hidden underneath. Therefore, all we can do is to uh, whet your appetite, uh, uh, um, point out a number of things, put a question mark over some of them, explain a few as far as I am able to, others. But if, as a result of this evening, or another evening we may have on this matter, the fear of the Lord comes upon us, it has been well worthwhile. Where is the fear of the Lord today amongst the people of God? I have seen people die under the hand of God. I have seen that the Lord is still the living God. You can't play about with him. He is like a consuming fire. He must be treated with awe and reverence. Now, I'm not asking for that cringing kind of uh, fear that some people associate with the fear of the Lord. That's not what we're talking about at all. Nor are we asking that people should suddenly all become all frightened to do anything, frightened to say anything, frightened to contribute because of the Lord. That's not the fear of the Lord. In the, at the very point at Pentecost, when the church was at its strongest, when the authority of the Lord was most manifest, the fear of the Lord came upon those people again and again and again. And it says so. Great fear fell upon the whole church. What on earth did it mean? It didn't stop them contributing. It didn't stop them witnessing. It didn't stop them working. It didn't stop the Lord manifesting himself in and through them. But there was great fear upon them all. All to be done with this nonsensical stuff that sometimes goes to the work of the Spirit. 
It is nothing but the soul in the realm of the spirit. But when really the spirit of God starts to work, a reverence comes upon us. An awe comes upon us. We begin to watch the way we dress. We begin to watch the way we conduct ourselves. We begin to watch the way that we behave. Because we know with whom we have to do. We love him. It's not a cringing fear with torment and punishment, as the scripture says. From that we must be delivered. But that kind of fear which comes out of a sensitive love for God. The fear of the Lord is something we don't find in the 20th century. We associate it with the Dark Ages or the Middle Ages or so on. But God has not changed. The 20th century doesn't mean that God's power is less or that he is less a consuming fire than he ever was. God doesn't change. God is the same. Always the same. And Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Therefore, I hope that in touching this whole matter, if nothing else, the profundity of it, the mystery of it, will so come upon us that an inquiring and sensitive spirit may be produced in us all in our walk with God. Now, what I'm going to do is go for a ramble uh, through the Old Testament. So if you like to take your Bible, and we start now, and we're going to look at all the various uh, references to covering. Can't look at every single one of them, but a lot of them we will start. Now, first of all, we will go on a sort of a few circuits. The first is a personal one. Now, let's go on the personal circuit, as it were. First, Exodus, chapter 33 and verse 22. Exodus 33 and verse 22. 21 and 22. And the Lord said, Behold, there is a place by me, and thou shalt stand upon the rock, and it shall come to pass, while my glory passeth by, that I will put thee in a cleft of the rock, and will cover thee with my hand until I have passed by. And I will take away my hand, and thou shalt see my back, but my face shall not be seen. Now may I ask why it was necessary for God to cover Moses, one of the most righteous men that we know in the Bible? Why should he be hidden, covered, when God showed himself to him. Ask yourself this question. One day every one of us is going to see the glory of the Lord. But you know the glory of the Lord could destroy us. Unless we were covered. Like a million, million volts. It could destroy us. The glory of the Lord. He covered him. Now look at Isaiah chapter 51, verse 16. Isaiah 51, 
And I have put my words in thy mouth and have covered thee in the shadow of my hand that I may plant the heavens and lay the foundations of the earth and say unto Zion, Thou art my people. Now that's a most extraordinary statement to say that before God fulfills his purpose, he takes this one, puts his words in his mouth and covers him with, his, with the shadow of his hand. His hand is over him. So as his hand is a shadow over him. He's covered. Look again at Isaiah 49, verse 2. And he hath made my mouth like a sharp sword. In the shadow of his hand hath he hid me. Covering again. Psalm 91 and verse 1, we've read that. He that dwelleth in the secret place of the Most High shall abide under the shadow of the Almighty. And of course, verse 4, in the pinion, um, in his, just wait, how does it go? I can't just, in the covering of his pinions shall he, and he will cover thee with his pinions, and under his wings shalt thou take refuge, yes. And 61, Psalm 61 and verse 4. Psalm 61, verse 4. We go through these scriptures first. They will not mean too much to you to start with, but afterwards we shall draw out a few lessons from them. 61, verse 4. I will dwell in thy tabernacle forever. I will take refuge in the covert of thy wings. This word covert is the covered place. In the covert of thy wings. That which thy wings cover. Deuteronomy chapter 33 Deuteronomy chapter 33 verse 12 of Benjamin he said the beloved of the Lord shall dwell in safety by him he covereth him all day long the beloved of the Lord shall dwell in safety by him he covereth him all the day long and he dwelleth between his shoulders. Isaiah 61. Back to Isaiah. Chapter 61. Verse 10. I will greatly rejoice in the Lord. My soul shall be joyful in my God. For he hath clothed me with the garments of salvation. He hath covered me with the robe of righteousness, as a bridegroom decketh himself with a garland, and as a bride adorneth herself with her jewels. Covered. And then, lastly, in this personal circuit, as it were, just the personal side, 140, Psalm 140, verse 7. I wonder whether many of you ever noticed this little verse in this psalm. O Lord, God, the strength of my salvation, Thou hast covered my head in the day of battle. Thou hast covered my head 
in the day of battle. So there we have a number of verses representative of very many more that deal with this matter of covering personally. Now take a look at one of the greatest symbolical things in the Old Testament, the tabernacle. Look at Exodus 26. Exodus 26. Now I think all of you know that every single thing in the tabernacle was symbolic. It was a pattern of heavenly things. Exodus 26, verse 7. Thou shalt make curtains of goat's hair for a tent over the tabernacle, or a covering over the tabernacle. Then, same chapter, verse 13 and 14. And the cubit on the one side, and the cubit on the other side, of that which remaineth in the length of the curtains of the tent, shall hang over the sides of the tabernacle, on this side and on that side, to cover it. And thou shalt make a covering for the tent of ram skins dyed red and a covering of seal skins above. So first of all you had the um, white, blue, scarlet and purple. That was the interwoven curtain of those colors. Then above that you had the ram skins dyed red and then above that you had the seal skins. We're not quite sure it's badger skins, seal skins or what skin exactly it is. But there were three coverings to the tabernacle. And each one of them has meaning. Now, if you turn to Numbers and chapter four, Numbers chapter four, from verse five. When the camp setteth forward, Aaron shall go in and his sons, they shall take down the veil of the screen and cover the ark of the testimony with it and shall put thereon a covering of seal skin, and shall spread over it a cloth all of blue, and shall put in the staves thereof. And upon the table of showbread they shall spread a cloth of blue, and put thereon the dishes, spoons, bowls, cups, wherewith to pour out, and the continual bread shall be thereon. And they shall spread upon them a cloth of scarlet, and cover the same with a covering of seal skin, and shall put in the staves thereof. Now, if you read right the way through down to verse 14, you'll find it's all to do with covering. Every single bit of the tabernacle has to be covered. And they shall spread upon it a covering of sealskin and put in the staves thereof. And when Aaron and his sons have made an end of covering the sanctuary and all the furniture of the sanctuary as the camp is to set forward, after that the sons of Kohath shall come to bed, but they shall not touch the sanctuary lest they die. It all had to be covered. Now turn to two chronicles. Chapter 5. Two chronicles, chapter 5, verse 7 and 8. So many things here that perhaps are hard to understand. If you ask God to show you, he will. And the priest brought in the ark of the covenant of the Lord into its place, into the oracle of the house, to the most holy place, even under the wings of the cherubim. For the cherubim spread forth their wings over the place of the ark, and the cherubim covered the ark and the staves thereof above. Now I wonder what on earth that was all about. Why did the wings of the cherubim have to cover the ark? 
And they were so amazing that they covered literally the whole thing from end to end, far beyond. You could just see the staves on either side coming out behind the curtain, but you, the wings covered the whole. You've got this in three different places in Scripture about the wings of the cherubim covering the ark of uh, the Lord. Now, another circuit. That was the tabernacle. We're not explaining it, but it'll come in later studies. Now, another one which is even much more interesting, I think, than all these. The glory of the Lord. Now, here we come to what I find a great mystery, but perhaps it's the key to this whole matter. First, Exodus 24. Exodus 24. And verse 15 and 16. And Moses went up into the mount, and the cloud covered the mount. And the glory of the Lord abode upon Mount Sinai, and the cloud covered it six days. And the seventh day he called unto Moses out of the midst of the cloud. And the appearance of the glory of the Lord was like devouring fire on the top of the mount in the eyes of the children of Israel. And Moses entered into the midst of the cloud and went up into the mount. And Moses was in the mount forty days and forty nights. Now, it is interesting that this connection between the glory of the Lord and something covering it comes again and again and again. For instance, look at um, chapter 40 and verse 34. This is when the tabernacle was erected. Then the cloud covered the tent of meeting and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. The cloud covered the tabernacle, but the glory of the Lord filled the actual place. Now, again, Numbers chapter 9. Numbers chapter 9. And verse 15 and 16. And on the day that the tabernacle was reared up, the cloud covered the tabernacle, even the tent of the testimony. And at even it was upon the tabernacle, as it were, the appearance of fire until morning. So it was always. The cloud covered it, and the appearance of fire by night. Now, will you please look at Isaiah chapter 4, verse 5 and 6. Because this throws light back in one sense, upon those other references. Isaiah chapter 4, verse 5 and 6. And the Lord will create over the whole habitation of Mount Zion and over her assemblies a cloud and smoke by day and the shining of a flaming fire by night. For over all the glory shall be spread a covering. Now what on earth does that mean? For over all the glory shall be spread a covering. And there shall be a pavilion for a shade in the daytime from the heat, and for a refuge and for a covert from storm and from rain. Well, I don't know if you're mystified enough uh, yet. Well, there's a bit more to come. Uh, Ezekiel chapter 1. 
And if anyone can mystify anybody, it should be Ezekiel. Uh, Ezekiel chapter 1 and verse 23. Now, uh, just a word of explanation about this. This um, is to do with the cherubim. To do with the cherubim. Verse 23. Under the firmament were the wing, were their wings straight, the one toward the other. Everyone had two which covered on this side, and everyone had two which covered on that side their bodies. Now the interesting thing is, from also Ezekiel chapter 10 and a few other places in Scripture, that these cherubim had three pairs of wings. Two pairs were used for covering themselves and one pair for flying. Now what on earth does all that mean? We know that the cherubim are a composite symbol. We know that. We know they represent something. We find them, for instance, in Revelation, round the throne of God. If they're angels, they're the most hideous creatures you've ever seen. For whichever way you look, they have a different face. If you look from within, they have one face. If you look from without, they have another face. If you look from that side, they have another face. If you look from that side, they have another face. They have wheels within wheels. They can go up, they can go that way, they can go that way, they can go down. They can go at any angle from the wheels, wheels within wheels. And Ezekiel speaks of the whirring of the wheels. They have wings, but they only use one pair to fly. They have eyes all over, not over all over their hair, face and body, but over all their wings, and the wheels are covered with eyes. The whole thing is sim symbolic of the glory of God which was in them, and the kind of creation that God wants. Well, if you look at Isaiah, chapter 6, and verse 1 to 3, we read, In the year that King Isaiah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up, and his train filled the temple. Above him stood the seraphim. Each one had six wings. With twain he covered his face. Now, that's a very strange thing. I don't know how any creature covers its face as it can't see when it flies. But with twain he covered his face, with twain he covered his feet, and with twain he did fly. One pair of wings for covering the eyes and the face, one pair of wings for covering the feet, and one pair of wings for flying. I do hope that you begin to see that there's something very mysterious in this whole subject <laughs> about covering. But there's something there. I mean, these things were not, these visions were not given. Every detail of these visions, you know as well as I do, has real meaning. And when the scripture explicitly tells us about, for instance, wings, how they're used or how they're not used, there's always a reason for it. Well, now, let's just have another look. Uh, to mystify you a little further. Ezekiel chapter 28. Now I suppose most Christians who know their Bibles would find this particular reference one of the most mystifying in the whole Bible. Ezekiel, it's about Satan. It is one of the only two reference, references we have in the whole Bible as to how sin began. Ezekiel 28, verse 14, speaking of 
Satan. Thou wast the anointed cherub that covereth. Thou wast the anointed cherub that covereth. And I set thee so that thou wast upon the holy mountain of God. Thou hast walked up and down in the midst of the stones of fire. Thou wast perfect in thy ways from the day that thou wast created till unrighteousness was found in thee. By the abundance of thy traffic, they filled the midst of thee with violence, and thou hast sinned. Therefore have I cast thee as profane out of the mountain of God, and I have destroyed thee, O covering cherub, from the midst of the stones of fire. I think that that is one of the most mysterious references in the Bible. We know, of course, that the devil is the most intelligent being in the universe. We know that. We know that the devil was originally, evidently, had a position. Lucifer, he's called. That he had some position in God's original economy do with worship and to do with covering something to do with the glory of God something to do with this glory over which was spread a covering well now what does it all mean that's a ramble through the Old Testament what does it mean there's enough there, I think, for you to recognize that there's something far beyond us and something very important. There are three Hebrew words that are used in the Old Testament for this matter of covering. One means to conceal or to hide, and that is the most, commonly one, most common one used. The second means to enclose or to hedge in. And this is how it speaks of thou wast the anointed cherub that enclosed or hedged in. That's very interesting. Um, it speaks of I will cover thee with my hand. Exodus 33. That word is I will hedge thee and I will enclose thee with my hand. But the other reference in Isaiah to I will uh, cover thee with the shadow of my hand is I will conceal thee. And there's a third word, not used so much, which means to protect or to overlay, rather like a bird of prey, a larger bird, overlays its young. You understand? It sort of uh, protects them by bringing them in the soft, downy part of its underbelly and overlays them. And this is the word used about he shall cover him all the day long. He will overlay him like an eagle. Uh, protects her young, uh, concealed in that way. Now, obviously, this word covering therefore means or speaks of protection, of safety, of security. Now, let's come to perhaps where we all feel we're on more uh, acquainted ground, as it were, ground that we know a little better.
What it means to be covered is simply this, putting it in simple New Testament language, it means you're in Christ. This little phrase is used over 200 times in the New Testament alone. And to be covered means that you're in Christ. It's as simple as that. If you look at Philippians and chapter 1, the letter of Paul to the church at Philippi, chapter 1, verse 1, Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus, to all the saints in Christ Jesus. All the saints in Christ Jesus. This little phrase, in Christ Jesus, occurs again and again and again and again in the Word. Now we know that when we believe, we bleed into Christ. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever believeth on him is the old version. Unfortunately, the very new modern colloquial versions uh, have put in, but it doesn't really mean in. It means that we've, our faith has carried us into him. There's activity in it. We don't stand here and believe in Christ over there, but our faith carries us into Christ. Through our faith, God puts us in his own Son, so that we're in his Son. Now, there are all kinds of phrases in the, the New Testament which sum up this matter of covering. Every time you read that you're in Christ, made to sit with him, or in him, in heavenly places, raised in him, and all these other things, it's, it's a question of being covered. You're in him. You're in, that's where God has put you. If you've been saved by the grace of God, if you've been saved through the blood of Jesus Christ, if you've been born of the Spirit of God, you're in Christ. That's your position. God has put you there. Now, that is your security. He is your stronghold. He is your fortress. He is the secret place of the Most High. That is the covert where God has put you in Christ. So then now, every born-again person in this room, I hope that every single one of us is so, every single born-again child of God within the confines of these walls has been placed in Christ by God. That is our position. Whether we're there in practice is another thing, but that is our position. God has put us there. Through faith in his Son, God has brought us into him. Now, there are three phrases or three uh, um, matters that we associate with this. We speak of the name of the Lord. The name of the Lord. For instance, we read in John and uh, chapter... 14, John chapter 14, verse 30. Whatsoever ye shall ask in my name, that will I do. Now, what did the Lord Jesus mean? He didn't mean that just we, act, we tack on the end of our prayers like a little charm in the name of Jesus Christ. And that works a miracle. Many Christians think that the name of Jesus is a charm. That all you've got to say is Jesus, 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 and, and something happens. Not unless the facts behind your use of that name are right. If the facts behind it are true and real, then you can take the name of Jesus on your lips and hell will quiver. But not otherwise. 
in the name of Jesus. What does it mean? It means that you're in him. Look, I have there four fingers and a thumb. I have there four fingers and a thumb. I have eight fingers and two thumbs. And they are all in Lance Lambert. They're no one else's fingers or thumbs. They're in me. Now, these fingers can say, we can speak to you in the name of Lance Lambert. But Ron has fingers and thumbs, but they can't speak in my name. They speak in his. When we speak, when the Lord Jesus said, whatsoever you shall ask the Father in my name, that will I do. He meant, when you're in me, you come to the Father in me. You simply say, Father, we're not approaching you in our merits as if we're anything, as if we can get anything out of you. We're approaching you in thy Son. We're in him. We have a right to his name. So whatsoever ye do, do all in the name of Jesus. Do everything as being in Christ. That's where you are. Where two or three are gathered together in my name, there am I in the midst. Here we are. We're, we've gathered into the name because we're in Christ. All of us are in Christ. Christ is in all of us. In the name. Take another phrase, the blood of Jesus Christ. Some people have said to me, after having terrible experiences and being carved up by the enemy, I can't understand it. You know, I repeat it again and again, the blood of Jesus, the blood of Jesus. But you can't repeat the blood of Jesus and live in disobedience? As if by referring to the blood of Jesus you can take Satan in? If Satan knows he's got a foothold in your life and there's disobedience in your life, you can't just say, the blood of Jesus, the blood of Jesus. Satan laughs. Ha! He says, what you must do is get that matter put right under the blood of the Lamb. Then you can say, in the blood of Jesus. When Satan comes and says, what about that? What about that? You can say, the blood of the Lamb. Father, the blood of the Lamb. And there's peace in your conscience immediately. Whereas if the thing is still not settled, you go out and you've still got a bad conscience. And you think, I don't know, it doesn't work for me. They talk about being justified fully through Calvary's love, but it doesn't seem to work for me. Well, of course not. You can't be unreal. This invisible world around us sees the reality of things. Now, what does it mean when we speak of the blood? Look at 1 John, chapter uh, 1 and verse 7. If we walk in the light as he is in the light, the blood of Jesus Christ, God's Son, goes on cleansing us from all sin. Will you please, all of you, note that there is an if. There is an if. If we walk in the light as God is in the light, we have fellowship one with another and the blood of Jesus Christ goes on cleansing us from all sin. In other words, dear child of God, get this absolutely clear. If we don't walk in the light with God and we don't walk in the light with one another, then the blood of Jesus Christ, God's Son, doesn't go on cleansing. If we confess our sins as He, if we confess that he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins. 
but there must be confession. Now, that word just means simply to say the same thing. That's all. To recognize what God calls it. If God says it's sin, I say it's sin. If God says that was disobedience, I say, Lord, it was disobedience. If we confess the blood of Jesus Christ, the righteousness of Christ, <laughs> it speaks in Philippians chapter 3, the Apostle Paul says, that I may be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own, but the righteousness which is through faith in Christ. The righteousness. Now, to be covered means that we're in Christ. We can, we can speak in the name. We can act in the name. We're in Christ. The blood of Jesus Christ, God's Son, cleanses us continually from all sin. We're in Christ. We're robed in the righteousness of the Lord Jesus Christ. It's as simple as that. Now, there are other phrases, too, that come up immediately in this matter of covering, which I hope you will understand. It follows on from this. The Lord Jesus, in the last hours of his life, was at great pains to use one phrase over and over and over and over again. And this was the phrase, abide in me. Abide in me. Again and again and again and again he uses it. Right the way through those chapters 14, 15, 16, John, the last words to his own dear uh, disciples, abide in me. What did he mean? He said, remain in me. Remain in me. That's your place of covering. That's where you're safe. That's where you're secure. That's where you're protected. Abide in me and I in you. We speak of being hidden. The Apostle Paul says in in Colossians 3 and verse 3, our life is hid with Christ in God. That is covenant. That is covenant. The armor of God. Have you found the Lord Jesus like that? You know him as the helmet of salvation. Do you wear it? Or are there times when your mind can be attacked because you haven't got the helmet on. The head is the most vulnerable part in many ways. That's why we all need to find Christ as the helmet of salvation, covered. You know Christ as truth, not ju just as the truth, but as truth, reality. Your loins, I see in all the modern versions, it says strapped. Or, um, I can't just say the word's gone for me now, but it's pulled in, the belt, pulled in, here, the strength. With reality. If there's any unreality in our lives, we feel loose. Do you know Christ as reality? Breastplate of righteousness. Some of the modern versions say integrity. That's over the heart. 
righteousness. Your feet shod with the preparation of the gospel of peace. That's a hard word, but what it simply means is this. You've got your feet properly shod with good shoes. And what are these shoes? Peace. Do you know the peace of God? Do you know Christ as the peace of God? You can't keep in the way of God without that peace. How do you know the will of God? Let the peace of God arbitrate in your heart. Let the peace of God rule in your heart. You'll know that you should go that way or that way by the peace of God. That's the way. Your feet are shod with the gospel of peace. The gospel through which peace has come to you. Shield of faith. Do you know Christ as the shield of faith? The thing you can move about when the fiery darts come? Covering. Well now, I think our time has gone. And this is only really an introduction in a somewhat poor way because the matter is so complex and, and so vast. But I would just like to say this in, in, in closing. I think perhaps we can understand this whole matter much more when we look at it from the negative side. What it means when we get uncovered. Now, many modern-day believers refuse to believe that you can be weak or sick or even die. But 1 Corinthians chapter 11 and verse 30 tells us that if we don't discern the body, that is the reality of the presence of Christ, of what it is to be in Christ and Christ to be in us all, this can happen. Weakness, sickness, death. Now, of course, people will strangely say, what kind of gospel is that? But that's this whole matter of covering. Every one of us should take heed in this matter. You see, people say, well, how do you get uncovered? I'm getting frightened. How do you get uncovered? Well, the best thing is to make sure that you're abiding. You see, you don't have to fight to get under covering. You're there. All you've got to do is stay where you've, God's put you. But when something's gone wrong, for goodness sake, see that you put it right. In perhaps our next study, we will look at some of the illustrations in the Old Testament of people who got uncovered. And these were written for our example. And that perhaps it's the easiest way for us to understand this vast matter, by seeing concrete illustrations. But you know, a thing struck me the other day so forcibly. When we pray as we were taught to pray by the Lord Jesus, forgive us our trespasses as we forgive them their trespass against us. I wonder whether many of us understand what we're praying. We are asking God not to forgive us if we haven't forgiven someone else. Listen again. Forgive us our trespasses as we 
forgive them a trespass against us. Have you ever realized that, dear child of God, is uncovering? If I come before God and talk to God and there is unforgiveness in my heart, I'm uncovered. There are forces that watch and say, aha, oh, so he thinks he can get away with that. She thinks, what are you going to do about it? Remember the words of the Lord Jesus when he said to Peter, 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 Simon, Simon, Satan hath obtained thee by request. I have prayed for thee that thy faith fail not. Now what on earth did he mean? Satan hath obtained thee by request. Go back a little earlier and you find that Peter said, I'll lay down my life for you, Lord. He didn't know himself. In that moment, he was uncovered. And Satan went to God and said, Did you hear that? Well, now you know. Is it, is it true? Is it true? Let me have him. Let me have him. And God said, You can have him. Because there's something there that will come through. And what he'll lose in the trial will be only what is not worth keeping. Jesus said, I have prayed for you that your faith failed not. It didn't. Even though he denied the Lord, his faith deeper down than his denials never failed. He came through. That is uncovering. Well, we'll talk a little more about that another week. We'll talk about it in its different ways, how we can get uncovered. We'll illustrate it from the Old Testament by some of these examples and the New Testament. Let's just ask God now to help us in this difficult matter. Now, Lord, Thou knowest every one of our hearts, and Thou knowest, Lord, the condition of each of our hearts. Our Lord, there's not one of us that wants to be uncovered. Therefore, we praise thee and worship thee for the safety and security which thou hast provided for us in the Lord Jesus Christ. Help every one of us, Lord, to walk in the light. Help every one of us, Lord, to be in thee, truly in thee. Oh, may that truth be found in our inward path. So, Father, we commit this time to Thee, deep, beyond us, mysterious. But, oh, Father, Thy Holy Spirit can give illumination to every one of our hearts. And grant, dear Lord, that that reverence for Thyself, that awe of Thyself, that loving, sensitive fear of the Lord, which is the beginning of wisdom and a fountain of life to all who know it. May that be produced in us all. We ask it in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen.